This is a recording being made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals and the subtitle is An Examination of the Scriptures and Their Inspiration. This evening we're considering the bearing upon interpretation and understanding of various aspects of the use of time. Now, it's our custom at this meeting to read a portion of Scripture together, and those of you who are listening, will you switch off for a moment and read together with us the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles? If we begin this evening to debate the question as to whether Matthias was rightly chosen, or whether Paul was the one that ought to have filled the number 12, a good deal of our time will be spent on a subject which is not really the one before us. The point of this particular reading is that these men having been instructed in the Scriptures, they never questioned that God would at some time restore the kingdom to Israel, that never entered their mind he would never do it. But their question was, will it be at this time? And then the reply shows that time is a very essential feature for time and season is in the Lord's power. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But there are some times and seasons which have been known to us, expressed in the scripture and written for our learning. So I felt this evening uh, that we might turn aside from other aspects or evidences of the a superintending mind of the scriptures and consider the way in which time is used. One of the reasons why I have taken this subject this evening is because I was reduced in the same way to some the question of time. Most of you know that I've travelled up from Newcastle today and uh, I felt, well I must get ready for the Thursday meeting sometime last week and so time enters in even to getting ready for meetings and arriving at the time, advertised, and so on. It's a word we are using continually. It's in operation from, if I say from morning to night, of course it must be. There's no getting away from it. In sickness or in health, in joy or in sorrow, that time goes on without stopping, no waiting. And every one of us are creatures of time. I have a feeling that because of a nervousness on the part of our makeup we have imported, as a sort of a, a bolster to us, we have imported into the scripture notes about eternity which never belong to it. I don't know whether I'm right in saying you might look upon the whole purpose of the ages from beginning to end as a bubble in the ocean of eternity. Inside that bubble, something started and is moving to its goal. Well, that's time. But outside in that great ocean of eternity, there's neither north, south, east or west or time at all. Now, it's not possible for us in our mode of living to conceive of an existence where there is no such thing as time, and I'm not going to speculate whether it's so or not. Uh, it's another, uh, another question which is difficult, is to give a definition of time. We know all about a thing till somebody says, well, give me a definition of it. Time is, well, one of the definitions, which is a very lonely one, is time is the measure of movement. If you say a car was travelling at 40 miles, you haven't said enough. 40 miles an hour, or a minute, or a month, you've said something. So at least, time 
is measuring movement. Now, movement implies the occupation of space. So, time and space may possibly be the two sides of one subject, that it's not possible to be somewhere unless you're there at some time. Now, if you can get any good out of that, I'll leave it with you. We'll come to the book which doesn't speculate. Now, this book most certainly is a book that's circumscribed by time, for the very, very first words of the very first chapter are in the beginning. It doesn't say anything un until it puts a note of time, in the beginning. And then when you get to the goal of the ages, then cometh the end. So, I think we could put a mark in this great eternity and say that's the beginning and that's the end of time and we are concerned with that. One day, we may be prepared by God to take a step up and be concerned with something outside. But for the moment, this question of time enters into prophecy, it enters into doctrine, it enters into practice, and it enters into birth and life and death. One of the uh, little bits that attracted me many years ago was a verse in a hymn written by Miss Havergal. I dare say you know some of hers still. Take my life and let it be. Well, this one puts it like this. So onward and yet onward, for the dim revealings show that system unto system in grand succession grow, that what we deemed a volume but one golden verse may be, one rhythmic cadence in the flow of God's great poetry. Well, that only means to say, however vast it may seem to us, how vast must be that ocean in which it's, as it were, supported and moving. Well, now, uh, one of the features that I would like to get to immediately is symbolised by that little hourglass. To the Western mind, there's no time like the present, isn't there? I mean, that's almost the uh, way in which we would address ourselves. No time like the present. But one who's instructed in the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew way of thinking, he would whisper to you, Brother, there is no present. Oh, you say, now you can't tell me that. So look at that hourglass, will you? The sand is in the top of that hourglass, and that is running past and filling the bottom. That is the future running past and becoming the past. And the present is just that junction of the two that you can't measure. You see, I'm going to touch that piece of paper. That's future, isn't it? Now I've touched it. And it's past. It's all over. It's still going. The present is a thing that eludes you. It's good for us to remember that although we are creatures of time and we are much involved in what we call the now and the present, that it's only a junction between that which has not yet come and that which is already beyond us. And so it's good sometimes to look at that little symbol and remind ourselves of our utter inability to do anything about it. What can we do with regard to that which hasn't come except pray? And what can we do with that which has passed except put it under the control and the hand of the Son of God? And they are present is that which, of course, is only a link between the two. In the course of these studies, uh, later on, perhaps better than now, we shall realise that 
God in the scripture is the God of time. Now, most people would begin to use eternal adjectives with regard to God in the scripture, but I think they're wrong. I will just indicate a course of thought that we may take more seriously, that when he described himself as Jehovah in the book of Exodus, he said, that is my name unto the age, and that is my memorial for all generations. The God of time. And when you come to the New Testament, we read of the Saviour himself. That he is the same yesterday, and today, and forever, covering all time. If we have a Saviour, and a Redeemer, and a Lord of time, we can let eternity look after itself. But if we are worrying about eternity, which is so vast and beyond us, and forget that he has come, limited himself, and is the Lord of time, he who was, and is, and is to come, we may regret it. So, shall we just take a few hints from the scriptures that the element of time is worth noticing? I suppose there would be no real reason why Moses should have been inspired to tell us that in six days God refashioned this present world for man to live in. He could have left out the number six and the seventh day but you cannot read the scriptures through without realising that that was a foreshadowing, not merely of something that was in the past, but something that was going to be fulfilled in a vaster sense. That is to say that the purpose of the ages was envisaged, envisaged by the six days work, followed by a seventh day rest, before we get to a new heaven and a new earth, when a new week starts all over again. Now you know that is pursued right through the scriptures, we get six days in Genesis 1 and then we get six, we get the seven weeks uh, between Passover and Pentecost and we get seven months that round out the festival year of Israel and we get seven years when they have a sabbatic year and you get seven times seven to reach the Jubilee and you get the 70 times seven in the prophecy of Daniel. You can't say that they're accidental. There are too many of them. So that time element enters into prophecy and type and shadow immensely. And then you're reminded in the book of Ecclesiastes with regard to your affairs and mine. There's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. A time to love and a time to hate. A time to embrace. I'm glad it says that in the scriptures, but a time to refrain from embracing. It's wise to remember that sometimes. You see, a time for every part of your life that we do well to remember that a thing which is done out of its time may be wrong, although in itself it might be right. Time is a most important factor. Well, then we get specific times mentioned. Two outstanding ones that belong to our Saviour and his work. We are told in the epistle to the Galatians that in the fullness of time, Christ came into this world, born of a woman. That goes back to Genesis 3, made under the law, that touches those who were uh, in connection with the covenant of the Mount Sinai. The fullness of time. But I believe that it's not possible for any person to go through the history of the ages and give a real definite reason why nearly 2,000 years ago was a better time for Christ to come than any time before it or ever to any time afterwards. It was one of those which we read in the Acts of the Apostles that the Father retained in his own power and has given no explanation. 
And that's his right, isn't it? Perhaps it was the very wisest thing that he could do, seeing he had a spiritual foe who was ever watching and seeking to spoil the purpose of God. That he may have been guessing and wondering when this Messiah was at last to come, and God kept that in his own possession. But in the fullness of time, that child was born, that son was given. And then when you come to the epistle to the Ephesians, you read that in the fullness of times, he might gather together under one head all things unto himself, whether in heaven or on earth. But that's not the same word. We've got to distinguish, and I want to point that out to you this evening, that there are more than one word for time. And so we get various ways in which this is expressed. Shall we look at this chart and let that give us a few directions? But I don't think we'll go solidly through all the details that are there. Those of you who are looking at it, you'll have them uh, in front of you. Those of you who are listening, listening will have the reduced photograph of it and you could make it your own private study when this recording is over. I've got on the top of it the two words, when and then. Now, they're notes of time, but they're much more than notes of time, because you can never say when and then in a logical sentence without implying a purpose. So, will you go to the first passage that, that, that comes to your mind, I think, 1 Corinthians 15, and see how that is a point in connection with this relation of time to God's great purpose. There are two notes here that are struck. One is found in verse 24, and then the, through the remaining few verses we get this emphasis upon the when and the then. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then, that is to say, after something else has happened, so you must go back, of course, the second coming of Christ, then cometh the end. So, here we have an assurance that there is an end. And that's a word that you've got to study, because you may misunderstand the meaning of the word end. You see, one meaning of the word end is, uh, I've got a pencil here, uh, the end of that pencil is there, isn't it? But the end of that pencil is that I should write, isn't it? The end of it, the goal of it, because if it wasn't for writing, I might as well have a piece of wood. So the chaos, the word end, never means just where a thing has reached its limits. But it's the purpose attained. Then cometh the end. The goal has been reached. So we have then cometh the end. When? Well now it starts. When? That's the first one. And then halfway through the verse, when? That's the second one. Then there's an interval explaining what he will do. And then it says in verse 27, when? That's the third one. And in verse 28, when? That's the fourth one. So here are steps in the developing of this thought of time. Well, I think we better read it now because it's so magnificent. Then come at the end. When? He should have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When? He should have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Don't forget that after the new heaven and the new earth has been here, a long time after, before the end come, there's death. Otherwise he couldn't be destroyed at the end. That upsets some people's views of it, but we want our views upset if they won't include all scripture. For he hath put all things under his feet. 
But when he said all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. What a verse that is. It sweeps the whole universe. And our minds get paralyzed even now when we are told by astronomers about the possible size of the universe. I was reading just recently, and it's a figure of speech, but it says that if an angel had been sent by God to find this earth, but he never told him where to look, it was in the universe. It must be like sending a child to look for one special grain of sand in the Sahara Desert. Well now, whether you could argue that right out to the limit, but you could say, well, it, it staggers the mind, doesn't it? Well, it says here, there's only one exception that is not under the feet of Christ. That's God himself, who's right in the background and doesn't come into the Bible at all, hardly, until the end is reached. If that's a mere man, it must be such a miracle man that it upsets all our notions altogether. I think we can realise here there's something beyond our comprehension. But when he said all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. And here for the first time, it looks as though God, the absolute the unconditioned, the one not limited by creation or redemption, here, at last, God becomes all in all. We can only look at it down the ages and wonder and wait until that day of revelation comes when we shall know even as we are known. We're still in time and we leave those things as God has placed them. So we get when and then. Well then the next line on the chart reminds you that sometimes a note of time is a very valuable feature in getting the scope of a passage. We are turning to the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, to go through the whole of the Gospel according to Matthew would be impossible this evening. But I draw your attention to two time notes. And if once you see them, all the rest of the detail fit into their place quite perfectly. Matthew the fourth chapter. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now keep that in mind and look at chapter 16. Verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. There are two notes of time. And if you'll notice, the parables that come in the first section are the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. And then if you'll notice the second section, the parables are all to do with somebody who went away and left his servants behind and then comes back and tests their service. Perfectly different set of parables altogether. And all the other parts of the gospel fall into those two divisions. What I must leave that again to you to work out, as you will, if you will, taking these suggestions for what they're worth. Well, then you come to the question of the second coming. And while we've got Matthew, we look at Matthew 24. You will notice that there's a question of time immediately comes into it. When the disciples came to him on uh, verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us, when 
That's the first thing they asked. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? And the end of the world. Of course, the end of the world is a much abused subject. This particular word is not the usual word for end that comes in this very chapter when it says, then cometh the end and the end is not yet. That's not this word. This particular word, Sintelia, is found in the book of Exodus when it says there are three feasts in the year which was obligatory upon the people to observe. And the third one, was the Suntaliah, I'm going to the Greek version of course, the gathering in of the harvest at the end of the age. So these men who knew those words and knew what they meant, they said to the Lord, what shall be the sign of thy coming and the harvest festival at the end of the age? A true harvest festival. Well he says he's going to gather them into his barn. So we got now the emphasis there upon the second coming. But although he says in this same chapter, verse 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's another time and season which the Father has kept in his own power. All the, compu- all the computations, and I've seen some enough to make your brain reel. Lunar years, solar years, pyramid inches, ooh, I don't know what else. All focusing upon all sorts of dates until at last you come back and say, Lord, keep me sane and help me to remember that not even the angels in heaven know the day nor the hour. And yet I know the time when he's coming. Well, so that sounds a contradiction. Well, look further up this chapter. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 30, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. So I have got a date. The Son of Man, according to Matthew 24, and that coming will be immediately after the Great Tribulation. It may not be much to go on, uh, but it's one of those indications. Well then, while we're looking at this chart, we'll take the note because it will save us this precious commodity time. 1 Corinthians 15, again, where we are dealing this time, not so much with the purpose of the ages, but with that which is most important part of it, 1 Corinthians 15 the question of resurrection, and in that 15th chapter, he says in verse 54, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then, here are these whens and the thens again, this time element, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Well, if you keep that when and then in its place, death will never be swallowed up in victory by any process whatever, except this one. When? Then? And then he could say, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Well, now let's come further down this chart because time will beat us, otherwise if we linger too long on these incidentals. They're there to guide you if you care to use them afterwards. There are two distinct words that it's well for us to keep distinct in our mind and in our usage. The two words are easy to pronounce and remember. The word chronos is in our own language. We have a chronometer. And I don't know whether you know the definition of a chronometer. You might like to know this is very, very serious. A chronometer is a whatchamacallit. You got that, yes. That may impress it on your mind, although it's rather silly. Now, and I have something that I began to think was chronic. 
the pain right down this side, but I'm thanking God that the treatment that the doctor has prescribed has already given great relief. But we use the word chronic because it lasts all time. And you have a chronicle, which is a record of time. Now that word chronos means time in the sense of duration. How long a thing lasts. Time, see? But there's another word translated time, which doesn't mean time in the sense of hours, but the time in the sense of seasonability, opportunity. So I've used the symbol of the hourglass for duration. You know, in the old Puritan days, they didn't have a clock to look at like we had here, and they certainly didn't have red lights and orange lamps to tell you when to stop like I've got here, but they had an hourglass in the pulpit. And when the hourglass rang out and he had to finish his subject, he turned it upside down and he said, well now, 16th and 17th, my brethren, he went on, you see. That's time, and it was duration. And time can be something that you must endure. But the other word is opportunity. And I've given just there a suggestion of old father time. You know this is forelock sticking out in front. That's there on purpose, if you notice, in the picture of father time, because it says you must take time on a forelock. That's opportunity. And it is said of some people, they only recognise opportunity by its back. And they're the ones who believe in luck, and everybody else is lucky and they're not. So there we've got the two great words. At the bottom we have the word hour, which we may reach or we may not. Now this question of duration of time. We've already looked at Acts 1, where they asked that word, and you get the two together coming, you remember the next verse, times and seasons. And they will look in chapter 3, just to get the other passage. Chapter 3, where Peter is now explaining the purport of the miracle of the healing of the lame man. And he says, uh, verse 20, or verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So here we have further times, which are a part of God's blessed purpose and prophecy. And then we have in the same Acts of the Apostles, something to do not with Israel, but to do with the Gentiles. This may be worth turning to. Chapter 17. You know that the Apostle Paul reached Athens. Athens was the university city of Greece. It was the centre of their culture. It's associated with such names as Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, to name only three. And they are still men whose writings and speculations are studied by everyone who takes a course in history or English, or philosophy, or logic today. And yet this little man, this Paul, this little Jew, who goes out to Athens, he has the cheek to speak to these Athenians about being ignorant. Well, that wasn't because he wasn't good-mannered. It was because he was speaking the dreadful truth, that you may know all the wisdom of the ancients. And if you know not Christ, you're more than ignorant. You're lost. So he said to them, and he said it to them kindly, in chapter 17, verse 30, first of all he says, I noticed that although you had a multiplicity of altars, I noticed that um, you got one to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Ignorantly, he said it to them. Well then when he gets to verse 30, he says it again. And the times of this ignorance 
God winked at or condoned. Isn't it remarkable that where you, where you find Athens coming right to the fore in the Acts of the Apostles is the place where you look to find the word ignorance. You see, a person who knows Christ and has some knowledge of sins forgiven, he has a knowledge that all the world put together cannot outweigh. And this man knew it and he was not speaking harshly to them. He was speaking words of sense and soberness. So he said, at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. So we've got another time element. The times of ignorance, but now. And we could collect together quite a number of these places which say, but now. Think of the Ephesians, but now. In Christ Jesus, you sometimes are far off. And that is in contrast to the earlier verse that says, at that time, and that's particularly to the word season now, at that season you were without Christ. Not merely a time, but the whole season you were without Christ. But now, you're made nigh. Look at the difference there, that's a time note. And so these things will grow upon you, I think. We've already touched upon redemption, which is mentioned in Galatians 4, when it says at the fullness of time. Shall we turn to the passage in Hebrews chapter 5? just to see another use of it. Hebrews chapter 5. He says that he is speaking about the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ. And he had many things to say and hard to be uttered. But you say that may have been because Paul had an impediment in his speech or he didn't know his subject. That may be true. But he doesn't say that here. He says it's your the trouble. You are dull of hearing. And you do remember, friends, all the time that it takes two for one to speak. I mean, if this place was absolutely empty and I'm standing up here, I might be making a sound, but I'm not speaking. There's nobody receiving it. So he says, your dull of hearing is making it hard for me to speak. Keep that in mind. And then he says, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. You're just babies. So, there is a time, you see, in which you should be a babe. There's a time when you should be taking milk. But there's a time when you should have reached, as it says in verse 14, but strong meat that on it to them that are of full age. They've reached perfection, as the word is. They've grown up. They've become ready for service. So we've got a time with regard to our own growth and uh, there's another passage that will come to your mind about redeeming the time because the days are evil, a part of our very work. And uh, you might like to know that the word redeeming there is a word that could be translated, if you like to use such a common expression, of snapping up a bargain. Going into the market and forestalling somebody else. Forestall. You see the word, a market word. Well now some people are very keen about bargains. In fact, I've read with great surprise. Conscious I could never do it myself. They said they're, they're up there in Oxford Street. They're all sitting there. They've got their camp stools and their, their um, flasks. They're sitting right through the night in order to be first in their door next morning for some coat or hat or I don't know what. Well, it'd be a good thing if we were to sit up all night and have our flasks because we were so concerned to redeem the time. Otherwise, 
time instead of being an asset might be something that we have to answer for. So we have maturity. And then I've got 2 Timothy 1.9 on the program. Let's look at that. This element of time. He says in verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Strictly speaking, we have a combination here of the word chronos and the word I own for age. Before age times. Now what they are, we must go careful to plot them. But there are age times, or the times of ages. And so he says, before that took place. Well now, if this is parallel with Ephesians chapter 1, which says we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Well then, before the foundation of the world is before times, or times of ages began. So, we realise that since the foundation of the world, the purpose of the ages is now running its course, and when it's run its course, the world as we know it will have also come to its finish and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Well, let's leave that to speak for itself because of this movement of time and look at Kairos, opportunity. This refers to seasons, a seasonability. I've got a bunch of fruit down the bottom there against the other one. Don't mix the two together, the season. Uh, look at Matthew 11, just by way of uh, commencing an examination of some of the usages of this particular word. Matthew 11, 25. Now, verse 25, at that time, it's no good starting that and thinking you're going to understand it, is it? At what time? Well, you look back in the context, and this is what he says in verse 20. Then, oh no, I must go back earlier. They said, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a man gluttonous. Hence he talking of our Saviour as a gluttonous man, because he didn't draw his skirts and act like the Pharisee when he saw the common people. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because he repented not and said, woe unto you, Chorazin. And... Uh, so on. Now, verse 25, at that time, at that time, when it looked as though his ministry was spoiled, when he was entirely misunderstood, when these enemies were beginning to raise their head and say these dreadful things against him, at that time, what did he do? At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Now this is not time, this is season. Although all that had come, and that's the character of time now, season, you see, it's seven o'clock by our clock tonight. And if ever we get summer in this country, and we're here at the same time, it will be a little bit warmer than it is tonight. But the time is seven, but the season can be spring or summer or autumn or winter. Well, now we're dealing with that word that means a season. And at any season, when you think he might have been most depressed, he said, I thank thee. 
Now we mustn't, we mustn't hate these things and pretend these things because God knows our hearts. But always only we in the midst of all opposition could say, Father, I thank thee. I recognise thy Lordship. It's pleased thee for this to happen. Well, nothing that happened to me apart from its care. And something will come out of it that I may not yet know. But he goes on and links us with this spirit. Verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labour. This is the self-same person, don't forget, who said, Father, I thank thee. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now a yoke, of course, means fellowship, doesn't it? Even if you have a, a beast using a yoke in a field, the Lord prohibited the yoking of, of an ox and an ass because they, well, this is a stumbling business, it would be cruel. But there must be some fellowship here then. Yes. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. I was asked at a meeting some time ago whether I objected to preaching in the open air to sinners. Uh, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. And I said that I didn't think I would use that as a gospel text. Because I, I don't believe it was ever addressed to the sinner in the open air. It was addressed to poor, depressed and long-suffering disciples. I say I would go to the sinner in the open air and tell him he needed salvation and the forgiveness of sins and a justification before God. That's what we have to give him. So we shall be, we shall be doing good if we take a verse out of its context. This is something for you and for me rather than for the man in the street. Well, that's emphasising this question. And I've already said that in Ephesians 1, verse 10, when it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that is the word seasons. There's a season when it will be right and fitting for the Lord to be, re- to be recognised as head over all things in heaven and in earth. At the present time, it might be a fitting time in the eyes of God, but it cannot be a fitting time yet because that has not yet come. And then there's a sad note expressed in the uh, first epistle, the second epistle written to Timothy in chapter 3, where this word season is chosen rather than time. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times or seasons shall come. And I've got a note there, as you notice, against that word. In Matthew the 8th chapter, you need not turn it, if you know the man who was possessed of a devil, living by himself among the tombs, exceedingly fierce. That's the word that is chosen by God to describe the times or the seasons which we are fast approaching. The end of this age. He uses the very same term to describe that poor demented demoniac living among the tombs. There shall be, in the last days, perilous times shall come. And then there's a cryptic use of the word time, which most of you know, but we'll get an illustration of it. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 14. And the woman, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, 
and half a time. That's a peculiar way of speaking of time, isn't it? But if you get back at chapter 11, you get a suggestion. Verse 2. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And in verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days. And by the time you've linked all these passages together, which I'm not doing this evening, because it includes the prophet Daniel, you'll discover they all refer to the same period. Forty-two months, 1,260 days, or three years and a half, all come to the time, the times, and the half or dividing of time. And for some reason that may elude us, uh, for, uh, it may be that it's important at the time it was written, it was not spread out and given definitely, given in this cryptic way. Well now, just one more word. Uh, the light has gone up for me now. You see, I can't turn this upside down and start again, telling me that I haven't very much more time to spare. We'll look at the word hour. We've looked at time, we've looked at season, which is the appropriate time to do a thing, and then the hour. The hour is a crisis. The hour is a critical thing. The hour is something that's here and must be seized or lost completely. And so you get, it's the time or the hour that is not known. You might know the season, because the Lord said, you look at a fig tree, you see it's beginning to bear leaves, or what not, you say that summer is nice, and yet you don't discern the signs of the time. So he meant to say that we should get some idea, but the hour, no man knows. That's reserved by God. And again, in um, John's Gospel, I've got seven references, but I would not say that there are only seven because it's a long time since I looked it up. It may or may not be. But in that John's Gospel, it comes over and over again. Mine hour is not yet come. Now, mine hour is not yet come. And then, you remember, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. I think that's uh, something for us to keep in mind is sometimes we get a bit irked by the fact that we are under a, a, a domination of time. Here's the Son of God, patiently waiting. No, no, he said to his mother. No, no, he said to his brothers. No, no, he said to the disciples. My hour is not yet come. And then, presently, it had come. And he faced all the consequences consequences that were full for our sakes. And then you have a critical hour. I won't turn to the passage, Galatians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul, standing alone as he did, before the somebodies and the somewhats, as he calls them, in, in Jerusalem, that passage in Galatians 2, where he said, not for an hour. Oh, I do feel that must be rung out for us, friends. Compromise, giving a little bit in order to gain a, a certain advantage, never can be under the approval of God. If you have to stand alone, stand alone. If it looks as though you're hiding a light under a bushel, let the other people say it, but you do it as unto the Lord. Not for an hour, he said, that the truth of the gospel might continue, and the word is a fuller word that continue, that it might continue right through. Tonight we owe something to one little man who against all that company said, not for an hour. And it makes me think of another man. He wasn't a little man, I think. He was a bigger man in stature. Moses, who said to Pharaoh, not a hoof. 
Or did he say not and hoof? Or look it up and it may impress it on your mind, whichever he said. Or whichever he said, it's parallel. Not and hoof. Not for an hour. And then we have the tragic hour of the book of the Revelation. Here you get the whole of the Bible story gathered up now in the end. Satan's working right through the ages for what? For what? Worship. We misunderstand Satan if we think his idea is to make people a lot of blackguards. What he wants is to be a happy place without Christ. He's a religious being. The temptation that he put before the Son of God was, I'll give you all that you've come to get without the cross. You can go that way. One act of worship. That's Satan. And in the book of the Revelation, he gets it. And those with him, one hour, one hour, and then disaster. Now if you ask me if that, if that means 60 minutes, I should frankly tell you I don't know. I know that it's a point of time we've reached. One hour. All that blood that's been shed, all that misery in his wake, and he gets there at last for one hour. Babylon itself for one hour. And so we've done our best. The last note has to do with days. And we'll finish on that unless I'm beaten before the time. This is in the um, second of Peter, chapter 3. It says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. And then in verse 12, we have looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. And in the authorised version it says, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Well, that looks as though it's the same thing. What is the day of the Lord and the day of God one and the same? No, there's a distinctly different word used, so I'll put it in its place in verse 12. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, by reason of which the heavens being, they've already been on fire. The day of God followed it. By reason of which. And then there's one day which is buried in the, in the translation that you wouldn't see in chapter 3. There's one more day mentioned by Peter. And inasmuch as he said the day of the Lord, and he said the day of God, I think we ought to read verse 18. But growing grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and unto the day of the age. If we may borrow from the word that was in use in the Great War, the German use of the word der Tag, the day, the day of all days, he says, that's it. The day of the Lord will come and bring its burden. It will be followed by the day of God which will have its character and it's all leading on at last to the day of the age. And when you've got there, you've got to the end of time. And if you like then to say, and the beginning of eternity, will do. Only of course, as eternity is no beginning, you'll have a problem then. But perhaps angels, principalities and powers have helped to solve it for you. Well, I hope that it hasn't been in vain that we've met together this evening. And I've taken this off subject because I was very much tied up and limited by time. If I've only just stimulated your interest, to search and see and test and be sure of the terms you use and see that God has said they're all in his power at long last. So I'll end with a note that borrowed from the Old Testament that you and I can always take, especially in the hour of need, my times 
are in thy hands. Isn't it good to know that the one who holds all things together, who numbers the stars, has told us the very self-same one, says the hairs of your head are all numbered, and not a sparrow falls without his knowledge and without his understanding. Our time are in his hands too. So the purpose of the ages is not some great mathematical thing that you're calculating that leaves your heart cold. It makes you say, and I belong to him. And here am I worrying about the next five minutes when the whole of eternity is entirely placed in his hands. So may the Lord bless our meeting together once again. And all those who meet with us through this medium in distant parts when the time comes for them to share it with us as we know they do.